this thing on? If you like rock music, punk, metal, or blues, then you've come to the right place because we like it too. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Soundcheck, the rock and roll and alternative music podcast here at Central Michigan Life. My name is Andrew Mullen, and as always, I'm joined by my wonderful, awesome, brilliant co-host. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. Give me another one. I've run out of adjectives. (laughs) My name's Michael Livingston. (laughs) You're so greedy. Jesus. Um, And of course, we're also joined by our uh, wonderful podcast editor, Ben Ackley who uh, will probably not share his voice again <laughs> for the rest of the episode. He's going to take a backseat on this one, which I'm kind of sad about because I was kind of hoping to hear what he wanted to say about the topic we have at hand today, but that's okay. Um, I, I'm i very happy that I have you here with me, Michael, because I've wanted you to get into this, into this band for a long time, the band we're discussing, which, funny enough, if you are on video, you can actually see one of the posters behind me actually matches up with the topic at hand, the one, the only, the legendary REM. I'm very excited about this this episode today. Um, but before we get into that, Michael, we have some housekeeping we should probably take care of first. Yes, sir. You can always follow us on Twitter at SCheckOfficial, where we post playlists, podcast episodes, et cetera, et cetera. You can follow me at Michael C. Live on Twitter, and you can follow Andrew at Andrew Mullen4. Um, I should also probably mention, since we haven't really done it in the past few episodes, uh, um, we should probably probably let you know that you should go check out our past episodes if you haven't heard them already. Last week, we had an awesome episode where we talked about acoustic music. We were actually in the studio finally for once together. Obviously, we had masks and everything to make it as safe as possible, but it was a lot of fun. We got to hear Ben play the uh, the, uh, our our uh, theme song live, which is just a blast to sing along with. And uh, it was just a lot of fun being together. So definitely go check that one out. We, uh, the week before we talked about video game music, uh, definitely a fun one as well. Kind of got to like nerd out a bit and talk about our favorite video games along with our favorite video game music. And then the week before that, we had the wonderful Bricia Fargus, uh, who's a uh, feminist and artist who came on to talk about the one and the only Fiona Apple. Um, Also another terrific episode you should go back and listen to if you haven't already. So far, it's a powerful season. Huh? So far, we got a powerful season. Yes, I, I did realize I've said the power, powerful or almighty or whatever. I've used a lot of these <laughs> adjectives. Um, yeah, uh, Michael, do you have anything else you want to say before we get to the topic at hand? No, man, I'm ready. Let's talk about some REM. Hell yeah. Okay, so um, REM. I might have said this on the show before. I don't know how much we've talked about them on Soundcheck before, but REM is probably no most certainly one of my favorite bands if i had to like name a top 25 top 20 you know list of bands that i love they're probably going to end up on that list um they've always they've been there for they've, they've been with me for a long time they came early on in my music journey i don't exactly remember how i discovered them unfortunately that has mm-hmm. been lost in the annals of my memory um 
but I do vividly remember buying automatic for the people in like some used like CD bin at like a you know, charity shop. Um, I know I remember buying um, that record again on vinyl, uh, finding that one um, many years later uh, at, at Encore Music in Ann Arbor. And uh, I believe my first REM record on vinyl was Document, which I found mm. in um, uh, Cherry's record. No. I remember it was a record store in Dearborn. I remember which one, but mm-hmm. it, I those some of those records early on really piqued my interest in REM and who they were. And this was kind of coming coming to a point in time where I was starting to explore things beyond like punk or hard rock or metal or whatever. You know, before I was like, it's got to be fast and loud and grr. Um, REM kind of was one of those bands that really helped me break away from that. Kind of exploring slower, quieter music that had more to offer than just that. Um, so they mean a lot to me, which is why I'm very excited to talk about this band here today. But Michael, I'm curious to, as to hear what your experience was with R.E.M. I don't think you were nearly as familiar with them as I was going into this episode. Is that correct? Yeah, you would, you would have that right. My earliest exposure to R.E.M. was probably from my mom, who I've said on the show before, was definitely a listener of kind of what we call the college rock scene nowadays, the late 80s alternative stuff. Um, and she showed me bands like R.E.M. very early on in my my childhood um i'm not sure i'm not quite sure why i never kind of took off with rem and uh went on to explore more after just the main hits that my mom would show me but um you know it's it it's always one of those names that has been in the back of my head i hear the songs all the time i hear andrew talking about them all the time and plenty of other music nerds out there so it, this was a great opportunity for me to find a kind of get out there and really dive into it i mean we always talk about our list of bands that we still need to get into rem was pretty close to the top of that list so it's good that i got to check it off well yes and i'm very happy too that's actually one of the big reasons i want to do this episode was to finally get this bozo into rem properly so um very happy we get to do that but i also kind of want to um another reason i really want to talk about this band is for kind of to make two points, at least points that I've always held true with R.E.M. One, that they are one of the, you will never hear the same R.E.M. album twice, basically. They're always, they were always a band looking to reinvent themselves, either in minor, um, minute ways or to really stark, you know, wow, that was very different than the last album kind of ways, you know. And, and, and I hope to kind of make that point going through the discography. But I also want to make this episode to make the point that I think between from 1983, when their first album was released, to 1996, I think, is when their last album with drummer Bill Berry was released. That period of time is one of the best runs or release you know, streaks in music history. I will stand by that. I think you very rarely do I think you'll come across you know, a band that had that much solid of an output in terms of quality of the music in, in with that with that many records. I think 10 albums were released during that time. It Rush comes to mind, I guess. I mean, maybe the Beatles, although I, mm-hmm. I would argue their early material kind of um, is a bit faulty at times. I'm not saying R.E.M. is better than the Beatles. I'm not going to mm-hmm. go that route. But, <laughs> you know, like I, I don't just very rarely do bands just keep releasing this solid material for that long. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you'll agree with that, Michael, we can talk about that at another point, but I hope to kind of at least kind of, you know, um, 
uh, you know, ex- express those points throughout this episode. So, um, yeah, I'm very excited about this, like I keep saying. So, um, yeah. before we Michael, had do you any intro- other questions you oh. want to ask? Of course. Yeah, I have plenty, actually. Okay. Um, you, you, you have called REM's, you know, 10 album, first 10 album run, the best run in music history, um, or mm-hmm. one of the best before on, on the podcast. Um, you know, what is it? You you talk about an experimentation, but I think another element of REM that makes them so good is their consistency as well. Do you think consistency or experimentation plays more of a factor in such a good run like REMs? Well, I, I mean, I think it's both really. I mean, I, I think one of the reasons they were able to stay as consistent for so long is that they're always looking to, to play with their sound a bit, you know, and I think it probably kept it interesting for them and it kept it interesting for listeners. I mean, it, it, it doesn't help by the fact that, you know, the, um, you know, this band is so chocked full of talent, both in terms of musicianship and in terms of songwriting. I'll, I'll get to that in a bit more in a second, but um, Michael Sipe is often considered not only one of the best singers, vocalists, and frontmen ever in alternative rock, but easily one of its, one of its best lyricists, and I have to agree. I, I know I know Ben, and maybe you, Michael, as well, you might give that title to David Byrne or someone like that of Talking Heads, but for me, I, I kind of stand Michael Sipe in that area. Um, but then you get the amazing guitar work of, Bill, of Peter Buck uh, and just the great rhythm section of uh, Mike Mills and Bill Barry. You know, it's I, I think their consistency came from their ability to experiment and their um, abilities as musicians and songwriters. OK, going off of that rhythm section, question number two was actually what is your favorite? Because um, I would consider like there's like three or four major components of an REM song. You have Michael Stipe's vocals, you have the Peter Buck guitar, and then you have that rhythm section. If you had to pick a favorite, if you had to pick a song, like uh, an element of REM that you would want to be strongest and most consistent of any album, what would it be? Rhythm section, vocals, or lead guitar? You know, I'm always, I, I think it varies between album to album, maybe even song to song, as far as which component I think is the most important or the best. But I mean, I'm a melody guy. That's what I really favor in music. So uh, for me, it's Michael Stipe, you know, and I, I love his, vo- always loved his vocal styles and how his, the notes just seem to drip from him uh, as he sings and as how he's not able to craft these weaving melodies and these just wrought emotion that comes from. Sometimes it doesn't need me to sing loud or just overwrought. To, to display a huge amount of emotion. And I think, you know, he's definitely, I mean, they're all major components of this band. And, you know, when Bill Berry left in 1997, that created a huge hole in that band, which is why I think, which is why I kind of stop it at 10. Most band, most fans kind of do that as well, mm-hmm. because REM, many consider REM not the same band after he left pretty much. And why those the, the albums post-1996 are kind of considered the weakest of the, uh, are definitely considered the weakest of the uh, REM discography. So while they're all major components, all members were major components of the band. For me personally, I always favor Michael Stipe's, you know, vocals over all the others. Yeah, I would have to agree with you. His ability to make a melody is just something I've never heard before. Like, I'm like, I've, I've, like, I remember just this past weekend, you know, uh, Ben and I were recording a song and like, uh, we were really struggling to get this one vocal down for the chorus and it just took so long. And I have to wonder, does 
can stuff like that flow naturally for some singers? And Michael Stipe maybe proved that. <laughs> but uh, no. here, question question number three and final question, I promise. Okay. But what um, uh, you talk you talked early on about you know this being the first band to kind of get you away and get you more exploring slower, more medium tempo music that is uh, a little more less of a punch in the face and more like a roller coaster ride. You know, mm-hmm. was that at all challenging for you early on? Was that like did you have to struggle and listen to a few REM records before you got it, or did it take? Did you just click on right away? <sighs> You know, again, since I just don't really remember how I first heard about R.E.M., it's a bit of a difficult question for me to answer. Um, I'm sure R.E.M. was not the only band that was doing that for me, but I think they're definitely one of the key ones. And, you know, I, I mean, I imagine Ari with R.E.M. it probably wasn't as difficult because they still have a lot of those songs, especially early on in their career, especially their 80s material that does provide some of that punch that does kind of keep the tempo high a bit, you know. But, you know, when it comes to records like Automatic for the People, for instance, that one is mostly acoustic and pretty much everything on that record's mid-tempo. Um, and, you know, I'm, sh- I'm sure it might have been of a bit of a challenge for me to break, break through that at first. But I think R.E.M., because of those more high-tempo, you know, louder, punchier songs in their earlier records, kind of was able to bridge the gap for me listening to some of their slower material. And by the sheer fact of how great the melodies were, I think that's kind of what led me, how R.E.M. kind of led me down that path a bit. Um, so I, I imagine it was probably a little bit a little bit challenging at first, but when I heard songs like Everybody Hurts and, um, you know, Losing My Religion, the big songs, as well as some deeper cuts like Mati Got a Raw Deal, I was, I think they really, those are the songs that really kind of drew me in. And I think, um, made the, the prospect of slower music less challenging for me cool i think that's all the questions i wanted to ask uh, do you want anything else before we head into these albums um i mean I, I guess if there's any question i'd like to ask i mean just overall real quick um you can just give your overall opinions here michael what okay. did you think of rem i know you hadn't really heard much of this stuff before and outside some of the big albums and hits but what was your impression of of these 10 records overall that you- well, without without spoiling too much, I have to say that it wasn't a quick uh, latch on. I, I'll mm-hmm. have to say that it it actually started as kind of a struggle, um, mm-hmm. not ju- m- mainly because these past few weeks. I've been listening to stuff that sounds very different from it. I just wasn't used to it. I was going into a completely different world. I mean, last week we were talking about video game music and very uh, highly produced or, you know, soundtracks that stuck with us. And then this week I am dedicating my full attention to a band. So it, it took a minute, but I would say around the document era is when I started to get it is when I was like, okay. okay. And then, and then you get to green, and then I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm into this. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that more. But yeah, that's, I'm that's kind of the. You have to hear about this stuff now. You yeah. have to say about this stuff now. But uh, before we get into the records themselves, let's try to talk about REM. Um, I know they're one of the biggest bands ever at this point. I mean, they've sold bajillions of records worldwide at this point. They're one of the most celebrated bands ever, and not just alternative music, but music in general. So I don't know how much introduction is needed. But for maybe some listeners who haven't really delved much into this band, um, I think it's important to give some background. Um, your members for the band here today, Michael Seip, we already mentioned him, lead mm-hmm. vocals, primary lyricist for the band as well. Um, 
uh, Peter Buck, lead guitar. I uh, also played a lot of the other guitar-like instruments, um, you know, with mandolin and banjos whenever those would appear in albums. And uh, I think he also wrote a lot of the guitar leads and a lot of the uh, riffs and whatnot. I think he was the, pri the primary composer there. You got Mike Mills on bass and keyboards. Uh, some, some of the other members would also play bass and keyboard from time to time, but he was the main guy behind those instruments. And then you had Bill Berry on drums. Um, the, and those, and from my understanding, it comes to songwriting, those members are kind of considered the fine tuners of the band. Whenever Stipe and Buck would write uh, music, uh, Mike Mills and Bill Berry were a little more experienced with music than them, and they helped them kind of fine tune those albums. Not to say they didn't write their own music in the past. In fact, I believe Bill Berry wrote Everybody Hurts, one of their, one of their biggest songs. So. Each man was a, not only a primary component in terms of the music, but also the songwriting. And the reason I kind of read out all the band members, normally I'm not really interested because so many bands have so many different lineup changes. I just named the key members. In this case, these this is the band for pretty much their entire history. Um, apart from, again, Bill, Bill Berry's departure in 1997, there wasn't any other lineup changes. In fact, Bill Berry was never even officially replaced. They constantly used session musicians and touring drummers to fill fill in his to fill in his, his part um, his parts after he had left. So, really, this is the band, and very few bands I think can claim to have pretty much no lineup changes throughout their history of the band. Definitely. So, I, so I think that's very impressive. Definitely. Yeah, um, I, I have to say, I, I sometimes can't even play with Ben for more than an hour. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry, Ben. <laughs> oh, very boy. impressive to be be together for like fifteen years. So, <laughs> yeah, I know it's it's crazy. Um, musical style, um, we've kind of already alluded to it, but it's hard to really pin down an actual sound for R.E.M. because they were they're one of those bands that are always trying to change their sound. I mean, generally, alternative rock or college rock is a decent way to describe them. It's probably, it, it, no, it's not very specific, but you really can't with this band. I mean, there are times Jingle Pop, the times they were, or Jingle Pop, whatever you call it. Um, at times, you know, they were straightforward, like 90 sounding, like alt rock. And at times they were folk rock, you know, um, they were always kind of changing up what they did. And again, one of the reasons why I really appreciated them. Um, I don't know, Michael, with, without like diving into like the album specifically, what did you think of R.E.M.'s ability to kind of change up their sound as they moved forward throughout their career? Um, I would go back to the point I made before in saying that it took me a minute before I actually realized how much the song the songs were evolving. Um, that might have to do with a production element. Um, the fact that REM had changed their producers on their first like five or so albums really means a lot, and it's mm -hmm. not something you can pick up on when you're listening to it like how I did, basically on a speaker while I was you know doing homework. It's something you need to put on headphones and really listen for to pick up on all those nuances um in terms of uh actual instrumentation like um peter buck's guitar playing you're going to notice consistently the use of arpeggios the use of um you know very uh basic chord structures um it's simple guitar playing it's something anybody it's accessible and it's something anybody can do but then sometimes you'll hear them really innovate on stuff and that's that's tend to be what i gravitate towards mm -hmm. no definitely um and and you kind of kind of gone to one of the next points we want to talk about musicianship like i said um uh, i kind of already alluded how celebrated um Mike, Mike, uh, Michael Stipe is when it comes mm -hmm. to the vocals, and he is 
definitely considered one of the best vocalists ever, probably music. And I have to agree, he's one of my favorite front men. I think I might have even mentioned him um, when we did uh, our episode a few seasons ago about like our favorite like performers in music or favorite like, you know, whatever. We talked to our favorite, you know, singers, bassists, you know, mm. whatnot. I think yeah, I mentioned I Michael that. Sipe in terms of vocals. And I, so I think he is just, like we already said, amazing way of delivering a melody. But Peter Buck is also probably one of the most celebrated guitarists in alt rock. And man, I, I think that's true. His, you said use of arpeggios is definitely a key example of that, as well as I think his picking ability. You definitely hear that when they get went more in the acoustic direction, when, when, like, when you use like mandolins and acoustic guitars. I definitely think you've heard a lot of great stuff there as well. And again, the rhythm section, super tight and consistent throughout this entire uh, band's history. And, you know, I, I don't think in, while well, it maybe wasn't as tight a, 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 when the band first started, I think they became a real force to be reckoned with behind the bass and drums uh, later on. I don't know, would you agree with that, Michael? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I think the only thing we really haven't talked about is lyrical content, but do you want to save that for like album by album? Uh, no, actually, I think that okay. is, I think we should probably mention that real quick um, sure. because Michael Stipe is also a very celebrated lyricist and I tend to agree. Sometimes those lyrics can be a bit on the goofy side and we'll touch on those songs when we get to them, but mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure even some hardcore fans know which ones I'm alluding to, but um, no, it, he is, he's, He's an interesting case when it comes to lyrics because uh, cryptic is often a word I hear describe some of his lyrical content, especially early on in their band's career. As things going on, you know, especially when they incorporated more straightforward political stuff, it's, the lyrics tend to be a little more straightforward. But, you know, often Michael likes to introduce a lot of these ideas into his songs. And, you know, you don't exactly know what meeting he's trying to go off of. It's kind of open to interpretation, but they're still poetic in a lot of ways. They're still very interesting to listen to. You know, on, on the first record alone, he'll bring up like, you know, like propaganda, like U.S. propaganda against like Cold War, con you know, or Cold War allies and uh, like, like, like Roman or Greek mythology stories. And, uh, you know, you'll often, and one of the reasons why I'm kind of disappointed Ben wasn't on the show is because a lot of times we even incorporate a lot of themes of Americana and like travel and like, you know, different, like, you know, tr like I think Driver 8, for instance, is about like this old train station. I want to say there's a song on Reckoning that's kind of about traveling, you know, the western part of the United States, um, kind of talking about, you know, sites they, they saw along the way. I mean, as, you know, something both you, Michael and Ben, I think probably could relate to a lot of that road trip kind of ideologies with the lyrics. You know, you you, you kind of just get a bit of everything with, with Michael Stipe. Is that... Is that something you agree with, Michael? What do oh, you yeah. think of his cryptic way of writing? That's that's what I've noticed uh, throughout all across the board. Is like I love those silly songs. I love the political songs. I love the love songs. Um, he really and even like um, you know I love picking out environmental messages on it too because Michael Stipe is, really loves to throw in environmental messages, especially on uh, later albums. So yeah, I I can definitely say that the dude can write about pretty much anything. But also somehow consistently leave it ambiguous and open to interpretation, which makes the, everything more accessible. All right. Um, with that being said, I think I've kind of covered everything other yes, than um, about about the band themselves. Um, 
really we can kind of get into the into the records but yeah. i guess before she kind of give a little bit of backstory how they formed uh rem formed in 1980 in athens georgia uh it's kind of where the uh the band all the band members were from oh, i don't know if they're from necessarily i think mills and uh barry are from georgia but they're all students at the uh, university of georgia at the time uh yes and uh they all i think buck and site met like a record store and eventually they were introduced to Barry and Mills. Eventually they all kind of dropped out to focus on the band. Um, after rele releasing their first single, Radio Free Europe, um, in the early 80s, uh, they signed to R IRS in 1982. Um, it's kind of the and they would stay with R IRS for a number of albums up until Document. Uh, so, and I won't say much more about irs except until they leave because anyone knows irs was the most well-known label and i we do not have time to go into that label's history yes. but they were definitely they were definitely instrumental in their success here in the states um and even as a college rock band they were getting success early on i, I don't know exactly when but i know early on they were like touring for the police this is around the time synchronicity came out which is their biggest record so uh, in terms of success i want to say so there and even when it of shark success, we're talking about some of these early records. Uh, they were fairly successful for a college rock band. And that's true for their 1983 debut, Murmur. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, critically, it garnered a lot of success. In fact, I think that year, Rolling Stone magazine named it their album of the year. And that was over stuff like Thriller, U2's War, Synchronicity, mm -hmm. like I just mentioned. Um, yeah, so they were already getting a lot of claim. Uh, many fans, can. I was surprised and kind of forgot when I was doing research, looking at like how people rank records. Mm -hmm. Many fans put Murmur at, at the top. So many fans consider this their best record. And here's probably the hottest take I'm going to have all season. Murmur's overrated. I, I like <laughs> Murmur, but... This is probably my of the, all the records we're going to talk about. This might just be my least favorite record. Whoa. Um, and yeah, you know, and, and in terms of if, if I'm being objective, I don't know if I can put this one very high. I know people are going to, our RM fans are just going to come at me with butcher knives just for even saying this stuff. And you know what? Fair enough. But listen, I like Murmur a lot, and, and I'll, I'll get to it, and I'll, I'll get to that more in a second. But I don't know. Like to me, this, this record's a bit rough around the edges because um, it, it is a debut. They are they are trying to uh, pick, trying to learn each other as a band. I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like it, it, it's it's a really good introduction to this band. It shows a lot of their early jangle pop, you know, college rock roots. Um, definitely one of the first true alternative rock records we got in the '80s. So it's very important, but. Yeah, I don't know. Um, this this one's not one of, one of my absolute favorites. But before I kind of continue, Michael, I want to hear your thoughts about this record. Yeah, one more point uh, you didn't mention there, Andrew, is they did have an EP that came out before Murmur, um, yes. which I would strongly recommend. I actually listened to a couple songs off that, and mm -hmm. I really liked it. I haven't heard the last two. It's only four yeah. songs, but yeah, check that out too. But Murmur. I really like this record, uh, kind of opposite to Andrew. I think the early REM, um, which we can kind of say is like the more cryptic period of Michael Stipe's vocals, which is Murmur and Reckoning, is uh, kind of a top tier era for me. Hmm. Um, 
just hearing uh, kind of the shoddy production, I hear a lot of, um, you know, last week on the acoustic episode, we talked a lot about fuck ups in music. And like when you hear, uh, you know, a guitar note hit wrong or uh, the bass kind of goes out of time or something like that, you get a couple of those instances on this record, um, especially on uh, my favorite song called Catapult. I love this song so much. It gives me just like the happy, um, like college rock stuff that like the replacements would give me, Dinosaur Jr. would give me. Um, I love how the acoustic is kind of um, in the foreground and we have these awesome leads in front of it. Um, Before we go any further, we can hear some music and uh, Ben can play Catapult uh, to kind of start us off. love that chorus so much man Me too. It's, it's so it, fun it is um and you know i'm actually very happy you, you you played that one michael because uh that's probably very close to being my favorite song on the record not quite um but yeah no it, l- l- listen you know I, you know i might be sounding a little harsh in this record but i do think this album's still really good like i i, I can't i'm for a debut this is a really strong record and for many lesser bands this is this would be like their apex but um I don't know, especially when we're talking about a lot of the later stuff. I, 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 when you compare it to that stuff, it's it's so hard for me to say that this is like one of the best, you know? Um, I mean, you mentioned the shoddy production and and one way is it does add a lot of charm to the record, but a lot of times also it just kind of feels a bit iffy. You know, the tuning almost seems off at times to me. You know, it, it, the production sounds a little thin, especially when you compare it to something brighter like Reckoning. I'm not saying R.E.M. needs to be squeaky clean to be great, but I don't know. Like, I don't know. I just don't think it was entirely there yet. And when I also think about, you know, um, you know, there are a couple songs in here that I'm not crazy on, particularly um, uh, Pilgrimage and We Walk. It just Pilgrimage bores me and We Walk has this weird, like, rhythm to it. I don't know. It's not really for me, but... Um, I really, I really like Catapult. I really like Moral Kiosk and West of Fields. I mean, there are, there are great songs. This is definitely worth the listen. Like mm-hmm. I said, there is at the start, there is no record short of good to great, and uh, ranging from good to great to just god tier amazing. You know, I, I can't say Murmur is bad, not by any stretch of the means. But in terms of like their catalog, I think this is one of the weaker records. I know I don't understand why people favor this one so highly in there, but it's nostalgia too. I mean, it's the debut people want to kind of show respect to, you know, the, the kind of the, the 
the first instance of REM. They want to give respect to mm-hmm. from where they come from. You know, yeah. I think that's why I kind of had this resurgence recently. Yeah. But, um, do you yeah. want to keep going? Uh, sure. Uh, one more thing. I guess one song that I do want to highlight more is the single is the mm-hmm. only single from this record radio for Europe. Uh, from my understanding, it refers to a radio station, I think located in Europe, the American America would finally would blast basically like cold war propaganda to the opposing side. Yeah. I mean, like this is probably one of the first political, truly political songs that you will find in their catalog. Um, probably the least cryptic honestly um in terms of lyrics on, on this record and the song itself's a bop like this song alone makes murmur worth it so kind of if you don't mind playing some of it for us yes great single it's a great single probably one of their best uh one of their first singles arguably one of their best i would agree yes Um, let's continue let's continue on and we're uh i mean sonically you're not going to hear too much of a difference between between these two records um first two records i should say um we're going on to 1984's reckoning um this this record to me is for again, sonically similar, a lot of jangle pop, a lot of that college rock that they were known for early on. But I, if you ask me, this is kind of a big improvement on you know Murmur in every way, especially in terms of production. Uh, this, the band sounds brighter, the sound tighter. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think songwriting, I think is the um, not to say it was necessarily horrible on Murmur, but I think it definitely improves quite a bit on this record. You get a lot, you get a lot bigger hooks on this as well. Um, I don't know. I, I've, I've, uh, I really enjoy this one personally more so than, than Murmur. Um, and this is, if you really like your jangle pop, this is the REM record for you. This is like their peak of that sound. If you ask me, maybe life's rich pageant as well, but like they, they pretty much stick with that sound this entire record. Um, what do you think about this one, Michael? Yeah. I mean, first point to make is now we got a a producer, a couple new producers, Mitch Easter and Don uh, Dixon, Mm -hmm. and they kind of really did put their stamp on this one for just making it sound brighter, more full, a little more um, just sounding like a professional music record. You know, Uh, my I got this is the only REM record that I have on vinyl and it is probably 
I prefer this one over Murmur just for that sentimental value of being able to listen to this on the turntable. Um, I love Harbor Coat just right out of the gate. I think that's a fantastic album opener. And you can kind of tell they're getting in, uh, inspiration from all those bands they've been touring with. Like Andrew said, um, you can hear police in this. You can hear some of those bands from that era. Um one critique I would probably have is just how this record came together. They were trying to produce this while also going on this rigorous tour schedule. And some of these songs can sound a little rushed, a little filler. But um, at the end of the day, it's still uh, the production kind of makes up for that. The upgrade in production kind of makes up for that lack of songwriting in some respects, um, at least to the nth degree that I would put it. Uh, above murmur um i want ben to play harbor coat real quick because this is a jam That song is indeed a jam. Um, and I also agree this album probably is a little too much filler. Um, but I mean, again, I think to me, this is sonically an improvement over Murmur, I mm-hmm. I, I have to say. Um, highlights for me also include Topper Coat, Seven Chinese Brother, uh, Letter Never Sent, and the song that I want Ben to play for, for me, uh, So Central Rain. Uh, I don't know how to say this. It, uh, in parentheses, I'm sorry. Sometimes it's added to. I don't know how to say if that's South Central Rain or if it's Southern. I don't know. But we're, we're going to SO dot Southern Rain. Central Rain, that's what I'm going to call it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's a really fun single. Um, I think this was written... Doesn't make Stipe sound like the best person ever, but it was written about. I think lyrically, it's about how, like, early on in his life, he had uh, dated. He broke up this couple, and he dated um, both the, the the guy and the girl afterward, which <laughs> is pretty crappy. But and he's said it as much in the past. But you know, this is him trying to like redeem himself with these people, but not like receiving like a callback. I don't know. It it it's like also kind of a power move. I mean. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Well, uh, Jesus. Well, we don't have to listen to Michael on this one again. Oh, geez, this is already going downhill. Is it, hold on, hold on. Que- re- question real quick. Is this our first instance of um, Michael Stipe's sexuality appearing in some of the lyrical themes? Because yeah, that's something he brings could, up yeah, more later. I, we should probably talk about that real quick then. Um, yeah, so Michael Stipe, um, he never outright said he was like bi or gay. He always kind of referred to himself as being... Uh, he always described himself as being queer, but he said he's dated men in the past and women in the past as well. So, I mean, 
I don't know. Like it, it doesn't tend to play a huge role in his music. I mean, I think you'll hear some of it. I want to say they're on like Monster, and that on that album. But yeah, this is definitely um, one that def- probably the first instance where, where where that like kind of appears in the lyrics. And uh, yeah, you know, um, you know, I think he's definitely a good representation for the LGBTQ community. I mean. I mean, I can't really say as much. I'm not a part of that community, but you know, it is always nice to have that representation. So, but anyways, uh, let's hear the song and we can move on to the next record. Let's move on to the next record. Um, yes. Babel's Three Construction came out in 1985. Um, I think this record was released shortly, either shortly before, during, or after, somewhere around this time where they went on like a tour in Europe with the Minutemen, um, uh, famed punk band, the Minutemen, I should say. Um, they got a new producer for this record. I know you, you kind of mentioned before, Michael, they like to change producers a lot during this time. Yep. And that's definitely the case here. Um, Joe Boyd, who actually produced um do some stuff for nick drake and rs we mentioned last mm-hmm. episode so um which you know i think some people it's a lot of some fans tend to i don't know kind of sour on this production this record um some fans think this is a bit of a dip in quality when it comes to this record me personally i actually really like this record i kind of like the new direction they take this is actually one of the first uh, notable big changes in sound they kind of Less jangle pop and slightly more bluesy is the way I would put it. I don't know. Um, the, the things overall have a more darker tone musically on this record. Um, from my understanding, there's even a bit of a concept going on with this record. Uh, you know, um, Michael Sype kind of described, kind of explores a lot of Southern mythology on this record um, since he is from Georgia, after all. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I, I personally enjoyed this record. I kind of like the new darker approach they took, but it wasn't really everyone's cup of tea. What do you think, Michael? Um, I'm actually going to have you continue and share your song first because I'm going to kind of be a contrarian uh, to okay. you. What was your well, song? Okay, well, well, we'll have a conversation there. But if that be the case, yeah. I mean, I, I, can, I really like the riffs on this record. I think they, they bring a lot of interesting ideas to here. My personal... Um, highlights on here uh come from you know feeling gravity um maps and legends uh Gr- green grows to bushes and one of my favorite rem songs ever driver eight i can never get enough of this one let's hear it then <laughs> Build up 
easily one of their best riffs, choruses, mm-hmm. uh, one of uh, Mike Mills' best bass lines. I, I loved, I love that song so much. But I understand this record's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. Michael, what, what do you have to say about this one? Okay, so let me explain this a little bit. I don't like to compare the musical town and a band, but it's pretty easy to say that it's Mike Stripe that Stipe that really elevates the band to a whole new another level and i think early on in this record particularly michael was ready to go on beyond those first two records and try something different and experiment a little bit you can hear that in this concept that he's trying to put together but the rest of the members in the band weren't ready for that evolution at least that's what i'm hearing if this if this lyrical content was tried later in the band's discography in the era of like you know uh out of time green automatic for the people perhaps it would have worked but since i feel like the there wasn't a consensus on this project it just ended up being forgettable for me i mean there's not really a lot of tracks on here that stuck with me other than driver eight and i guess uh life and how you live it um but other than that, it do you kind of get what I'm saying though? It feels just like there's not a consensus on what this project was supposed to be. Maybe it's just that the album cover is really bad and that kind it of is. like oh my knows God. it. But I, yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, on the album cover, I agree, Michael. As someone who who has this record on vinyl, if I can actually pull it out, I never know how to orient it because it's like <laughs> both sides are the same and like like the, the like the part the album comes out. Uh, okay, mm-hmm. thank you. That's always the best. I'm glad you mentioned yes. it. But no, I I, I kind of get I, maybe there wasn't much of a consensus. I I I don't know how true that is though because. Uh, something else I forgot to mention, the band was kind of like in a really bad place in this time. And maybe that's kind of how this, it definitely mm-hmm. influenced how this album sounded, but maybe it also affected the quality. But I think the album was kind of reflect their mood at the point. They were like almost on a verge of a breakup. Like they like they were having such a, a rotten time at this point um, with the band trying to record this record. So maybe, maybe in the sense that they weren't like all there, like mentally, maybe that's why this record mm-hmm. kind of falls for some people. Um, you know, and yeah, you know, and I don't know if like, like, I, I, I agree in the sense that the kind of the concept does feel a little half baked, the, the, the ideas and the sound they're going for, um, could, could probably use some, ah, I start over Ben, uh, I should turn that off. Uh, so no, I, I, I think the, I think the concept overall is kind of felt half baked, the, the sound wasn't fully realized and it probably could have been done more so. But that being said, um, I also understand why people, because of all that stuff, I understand why some people might not particularly enjoy this one. For me, I really like this kind of bluesier, kind of darker mood to it. So, you know, again, I know I, I kind of break off from, from some of the fan bases. They tend to see this as one of the weaker Bill Berry records. But uh, that being said, I understand other people's point of views. Yeah, you can uh, make the judgment for yourself on this song that I want to play real quick called Life and How You Live It, and we'll move on.
record um they, they're releasing records yearly at this point they're really mm-hmm. cranking these things out um from my understanding fables did critically wasn't as celebrated as the previous two and kind of did poorly overseas in europe uh, that was that's kind of like a theme with er, this early part of their career rm was struggling to break out in, internationally um but they were still getting but they were still getting decent amount of attention back in the states um and that continues with this next record, Life Switch Pratchett, which released in 1986. Um, this is definitely a return to kind of the sound on the previous uh, record, uh, Reckoning. Um, and it kind of has a lot more jangle pop, but definitely incorporates some other uh, ideas, definitely some acoustic elements here as well. Um, and I think at times it's even kind of punky with, 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 with its really like forceful, it's almost like forceful jangle pop. Um, what do you think about this one, Michael? Um, yeah, I think this one is a little bit harder. I like how you use punk kind of to describe it because it is like the band is kind of, they tried their experiment, didn't really work. They had their kind of slower early on phases. Now they just want to rock. So I think this one is a good example of the band just trying to have some fun after uh, and, and seeing if that will work. Um, like you're saying, breaking out internationally. Um, I think there's a lot of great tracks on this one, and I think the um, there's some experimentation that'll show up in songs like I Believe with that banjo at the beginning. Um, I I like Hyena a lot. That's just catchy. It's a return to form. Um, but the one for me, I'm going to mispronounce this. It's uh, Cuyahoga? Cuyahoga. Cuyahoga. Uh, Thank you. And, I, and I have something to say about this after we play it, but yeah. Sure. Yeah, Andrew will talk about this more, but I love the environmental themes um, coming Mm -hmm. up on this. Like I was saying, we're going to get a lot more of this later on. So go ahead, Ben. So the reason I, I know how to I knew how to pronounce that, Michael Cuyahoga mm-hmm. refers to the guy. Ky- although I might be pronouncing mispronouncing it, but uh, Cuyahoga actually refers to uh, the Cuyahoga River in Ohio, next to Cleveland. Yes, I was born in Cleveland, so I'm a little, kind of familiar with this um, topic. Uh, if you don't know, uh, Cuyahoga fam- was famously just 
one of the most polluted rivers in America. I think in the 60s, it was so polluted, it literally caught on fire. Yes, <laughs> river, the river caught on fire. God, I love where I'm from. Um, I think also, um, also this uh, song, I think, talks about mistreatment of Native Americans, Native American genocide that happened with America. Uh, Michael Seip did write quite a few songs about that topic. In fact, uh, the previous record, Green, Gro- Green Grows the Rushes, that's what that song talked about as well. Um, yeah, this, this to me, this record's really solid. It's just, I think I actually wrote, wrote, wrote down in my notes, I just wrote solid, 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 solid. You know, um, it, it's a really nice return to form. I, and while I understand, while I like the record, I understand it wasn't everyone's cup of tea. And yeah, it sounds like the band was having a lot of fun. Um, for me, my, my highlights, um, on this are actually not the singles. I know I've kind of played the singles in the previous, but I'm not crazy about Follow Me or Superman. I mean, they're fine, but they're kind of whatever. Um, but I really like the opener, Begin to Begin. Uh, Cuyahoga is also a highlight for me. Hyena, I really like Swan Swan H. That's a nice acoustic number. But I really love the forceful, uh, just, just in-your-face uh, second track in this record, These Days. chorus on that one great chorus i know i really like that yeah i often kind of overlooked this one for some reason because um no no it kind of came between two records i really like i didn't really know the singles very well i didn't really hear people talk about them so i kind of overlooked this one up until now which is a shame because yeah. like this record's really strong i relate i relate to that as well like the fables and life's worst pageant kind of are like if I was to assign an era, it would be like the forgettable era for me. There's still strong tracks from both, but it's like I don't know what's going on there. It's just like I don't, maybe it's just because you got the, the where they come from first, and yeah. then you get like more experimental, more like yeah. in their peak. I don't know. It's just like this weird middle range. So yeah, I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, but uh, again, like I said, I don't think REM in this period has any bad albums. And I, I think these albums are definitely worth a spin at the very least. Um, mm-hmm. even if fables is not everyone's cup of tea. Yes. But, but now, Oh boy. Okay. We're, we gotta move on to the next record. And I'm very, uh, excited to talk about this one because, uh, we're talking about document released 1987. And this is the first big one in terms of their, you know, commercial success. Like this is their breakout. In, in, that, in that sense, especially here in the States. This, this garnered, uh, I think, I want to say the first top 10 single, uh, the one I love. I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm going to fact check that right now. While you're um, doing that, I will say this is also the first record we get Scott Lit, which is uh, their producer for pretty much the next four or five albums. So we finally have like a producer we're sticking with. Uh, I was slightly off the first top. This is a, uh, one I love was a top 20 hit. My bad. But the point stands. 
yes, this is not only a transition in terms of commercial success, but in terms of producer. And he would go on to produce their net, uh, up until New Ventures and High Five, Scott Litt. So, and he was definitely instrumental in making this band sound the way they were. They became a really clean, tight band, even more so at this point. And I should say, um, I should have said this um, with Life Switchers pageant, but Michael Stipe was known to kind of be shy performing, you know, performing on the songs early on in the career. By the time Life Riches pageant hits, you know, I mean, really, like, he was good before, but he was really at his peak coming into Life's Rich pageant, and especially on this record. Like, he, he's just flying from here on out. He's just amazing. Um, um, this is this is a highly celebrated album in the band's in the band's discography by fans, including me. This is so close to being my favorite REM record. Uh, just uh, love, 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 love this album. Uh, you mentioned this earlier, Michael. Where this is where you started to kind of get it in terms mm-hmm. of REM. What yep. did you think about Document? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, this is now that we got this new producer that's kind of throwing his own interpretation of of these this music it's just it's almost like you have a fifth band member from now on and it's like you know they're starting to experiment with new instruments they're starting to get a little more creative with the songwriting um like you're saying stipe's lyricism is at its peak um nearly at its peak it it, it's still uh, kind of on an incline but um yeah i i think there's tons of good songs in here my favorite obviously being end of the world I love this song and I think it's maybe it's just because like it's the you know we talk about uh Stipe getting a little more silly and a little more uh you know uh, a little more abstract with his lyrics and I think this is a great song to exemplify that even though it is kind of popular I wish I could hear more REM songs that sound pretty much exactly like this okay. because yeah. it's like it's almost folk punk in a sense you know yeah, yeah that's a decent way to describe it yeah, it's just so good, man, and it's so catchy. Uh, ben, you should play that song right now. That's great, it starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and airplane. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I have a hurricane, listen to yourself, churn world, serves its own needs. Dummy, serve your own needs. Feed it up an ox, speak, grunt, no strength. The ladder starts to clatter with fear, fight down, high Fire in a fire, representing seven games in a government for hire. I, I never have really heard there's like three other songs where Stipe's singing that fast like I want that more of that I love yeah, it so much he does have that kind of speak sing style on this also I gotta say I was watching Ben mouth the entire those that those entire verses and I have to say I'm <laughs> impressed this is one of those songs where it's like like kind of like I've been everywhere by Johnny Cash it's like how would you ever expect anyone to ever learn all the words and be able to sing along to this um it's definitely a tricky one especially for any daring karaoke performers 
Um, yeah, but no, do document is, like I said, it's amazing. Um, I should also probably say kind of how the sound kind of shifts on this record. Um, the jangle pop is mostly gone on this. It's definitely kind of your what, what you would picture like your radio, like you know, not radio. Um, your '80s alternative album. This is definitely. Mm -hmm. Uh, kind of one of those quintessential records. Uh, the tempo, apart from that song, the song's not really a, a great um, uh, example of this, but the tempo overall slows down. Uh, they they were able, they, they kind of went more mid-tempo on this and really just relied on writing great riffs and, and hooks with all their songs and really providing some really interesting lyrical content. Um, which I, I which paid off for them. I mean, a lot of times going mid tempo can be a death nail for a band, especially to me. But they made a work in spades here. Um, like, like apart from Fireplace, it's the one song I don't like on this record. Mm -hmm. Everything's fantastic from the opener, a finest work song, um, to uh, to the to the big single the one I love as well. Um, I'm sure you like exhuming McCarthy as well. Exhuming McCarthy is great, which kind of like, um, which kind of, uh, um, sorry, exhuming McCarthy is great because it kind of ties, you know, the Red Scare McCarthy era to what, well, to make American exceptionalism happening under Reagan. Uh, I, I, God, I love the closer to this record. Um, uh, uh, it's Oddfellows Local something. I always forget. There's like a number at the end of that. Um, I felt local 151, just a really bizarre song. Uh, it's got the slow burn build throughout it. And the lyrics touch on like Oddfell, which was like a secret society akin to the Freemasons. But it also talks about this firehouse in, in Athens, but it also follows this homeless guy, I think, throughout like the shortly. I don't know what the song's about, but it's really interesting. It's really cool. One of their probably most unique songs they ever wrote. And uh, I really like it. Um, but if there is one song that I really wanted to highlight was the second track, Welcome to the Occupation. Um, it, uh, the lyrics kind of kind of talk about a U.S. influence over cent Latin, you know, Central South America and uh, the, the banana wars that they talked about and how, yeah, we, United States kind of, kind of, kind of screwed over all the people living in, the, in those regions. So uh, it's definitely a part of history. People don't talk about very much. And it was definitely uh, very prevalent, you know, in the eighties. So uh, Ben, I would like you to play that one for us. Hang your collar up inside, hang your dollar Listen to the water still, listen to the causeway Do you mind if I uh, kind of preview our next record here? Um, sure. Go. Um, do you mind if I give some background on like in terms of where the band was in history? Go for um, it. Just real quick, um, because this is document was the last record they released at IRS uh, Records. Uh, they were really 
like bitter that they weren't not bitter. Um, they were frustrated that they weren't they weren't getting a lot of international success. So they wanted to move on to a bigger label to try to help spur that. And uh, they ended up signing with Warner Brothers. Uh, there's a lot of big money figures about how much the 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 deal was worth. But uh, the big thing for the band was to have full creative control, which is why which Warner Brothers said they would give them. So that's why they ended up choosing choosing them over many other you know con contract offers uh which would go to release which would um then lead to the, their first record on that label in 1988 michael what record are you talking about here we're talking about green which is my favorite rem record mine I, too my, i was really? not expecting that whoa yes and okay so many rem fans already hate me for saying i didn't like uh <laughs> Ben's pulling out the green <laughs> Yes, green album. Let's go. By the loser. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I don't even know the album's that cover's actually orange for R.E.M. I don't get it. But no, yeah. Uh, so many fans are probably going to give me crap for saying Murmur is like, like not, not my favorite and like not uh, amazing while I like green a lot. But whatever. We're, we're, we're hating. We're, we're making REM fans here mad by yes, I love yes. it. Why is this your favorite? <laughs> okay. This is the first instance where we're actually getting into the true golden peak of experimentation in REM's discography. Uh, you're getting a lot of the classic sounds that you would hear as just like a casual fan of REM. So, you know, we're getting the first introduction of the mandolin on uh, You Are Everything, which is going to come into that one song later on. And, uh, you know, the members are starting to experiment with the instruments that they're playing. So, you know, in a lot of instances, uh, you know, Buck and Mills will switch. Barry will play bass. You know, Buck will get on keyboards. You know, there's like they're starting to sort of get back and, and finding ways to reinvent themselves. And switching instruments was part of that. Um, there's just so many good tracks on here. Um, I'm going to let you talk about world leaders pretend because that is just an epic song. And I know you would rather talk about it, but the environmental themes across this whole thing, that's the peak. I mean, the album is kind of a nod to environmentalist with, with, uh, messages. I remember California definitely being one of those songs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you got that, the album title, the lyricism in those respects are peak, um, as well as just, uh, all the other political messages on this. And still, at the same time, while this is a really political record, it's still relatable. It still can kind of be ambiguous and applied to different situations. It's just like, it's everything I want, all in just uh, this weird release that came out in between, like, Document, which everyone remembers, and then, of course, Automatic, or, uh, sorry, Out of Time, which, you know, everyone loves that. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like green is just like, everyone glosses over this, but it's literally the best record. <laughs> Do you agree? <laughs> um, well, 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 let's be you the everything and, I, and I'll, and I'll kind of talk about that. Sometimes I feel like I can't even sing I'm very scared for this world I'm very scared for me This is radio memory Here's a scene You're in the backseat Laying down the windows Wrap around to the sound Of the travel and the engine All you hear is time 
travel You feel such peace and absolute The stillness still that doesn't end But slowly drifts into sleep The stars are the greatest thing you've ever seen Yeah, you know, um, I'm very surprised this ended up being your favorite, Michael. I'm, I'm also happy because it's mine as well. Yeah, this is one of my early, one of the first records I think in full I listened to from R.E.M. And uh, I, God, I, I love it so much. Um, you know, it, it's definitely far from a fan favorite when I tend to see rankings. This tends to rank a little bit lower when it comes to the Bill Berry records. Um which I think is a bit of a shame because, yeah, I, I think a lot of fans kind of, you know, dismiss it because I've heard some people say, oh, it's too depressing. It, it gets like too depressive at times, which is weird because it's also like a lot of happy stuff. But then like some people, that's some people's other issues. Oh, it's too poppy because, you know, this is the major label debut. So you got to hate it. Like, I feel, I feel like that's kind of the reasons why some people mm-hmm. kind of like not this one or just kind of like dismiss it apart from a few a handful of tracks um which again i think it's a real shame you know i think all the songs except maybe the single get up are pretty strong on this record um you know uh i mean even then the singles themselves are strong uh stand is great pop song 89 which um kind of talks which the, the theme of that song is the opener and the theme of it's like hey why are we like wasting time talking about trivial things like the weather per se instead we should talk about uh you know the government as they put you know politics and i can i can see why some people might find this lyrically this record be a bit pretentious or a bit like over overbearing in terms of its messaging no man i disagree there literally the the interview about this record was like we're making fun of like pop music we're on a, this major label now but we are not sellouts and mm-hmm. they they show that with the experimentation and yeah. with like the songwriting exactly you know and i could completely agree it's one of the reasons why again i love that song and i love this album but i can see why some people might come to those conclusions is all i was saying but um Orange Crush is a great song mm-hmm. about a really depressing topic, particularly the effects of Agent Orange that had on like the civilians of Vietnam and U.S. veterans who had fought in the Vietnam War. Obviously, that was probably coming up quite a bit in the news here in the late '80s um, when, when like, when like you know a lot of cancer and health effects were coming back to bite a lot of these veterans uh, later on in life. Um, yeah, and you know, other highlights for me. Uh, I remember California. I mentioned you are you are you are the everything is also great. Um, but my favorite one easily is World Leader Pretend. Oh, I love this song ever since the ever since I first heard it. Uh, it's actually gained a bit of a resurgence, if you can tell, based on the title because of the Donald Trump. Um, the Donald Trump regime, uh, obviously. Uh, it's in the world as we know it. Also had that same thing. I, I, sorry, I have the timer going. Make sure we don't go too long on certain stuff. So if you keep hearing this throughout the episode, I apologize. I tried to turn it down, but it won't work. Uh, but no, yeah, like those two songs definitely garnered quite a bit of resurgence because of Donald Trump and everyone either relates to the subject matter um, because of that, especially after the COVID stuff. You know, I think people will definitely relate it to um, these tracks. Um, yeah, I, you know, I've also heard that World Leader Pretend might be about drug addiction and kind of about like kind of controlling your own fate and like 
like launching the mortars is a term of like ins- like metaphor for inserting like a heroin needle. I don't I don't know how true that is. If it is, I think that is a really interesting way of writing it. But I think a more direct way to interpret the song is obviously about uh, you know some leaders gone mad and drunk with power. But it's not like a maniac, like what cackling kind of song. No, the the tone of this is so intense yet understated. Like Michael Stipe's not screaming or yelling. He's just kind of has really like just like low intense like delivery and it's frightening almost like it's like it's so cool i i i want everyone to hear this so let's hear and, it. and if that if that piano refrain doesn't give you chills you ain't human you ain't yeah. human I think that's all I have to say about green. Do you have anything else you want to say, Michael, before we move on? That's pretty much it. Do we just play losing my religion now or do we? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. No, Ben. No, not yet. Uh, You'll know when your time comes. Yes. uh, Let's talk about out of time released in 1991. I mean, this is again, we're in the peak of their commercial success here. We really are. And definitely this record, the, the, this record and the next are definitely the height of that. Um, Man, uh, you know, out of time is interesting because kind of like Green because it's more pop sensibilities. You know, overall, the album isn't is kind of divisive among fans, especially one of the singles on here, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but yeah, no, um, out of time is, a, again, another big departure. We had a lot of kind of 80s alternative sounds coming from the previous two records. Um, you know, we brought a lot of ideas new ideas on green but the kind of the one idea they brought was the they brought to this record was the mandolin and more more generally acoustic you know you know instrumentation they also brought i think uh i want to say uh no they brought organs on your keyboard so not entirely acoustic but they also brought uh, acoustic guitar they just kind of brought all these new instruments and kind of playing around with the sound again and it worked for me, like gangbusters, I think this record, again, like Life's Rich Pageant, is solid, solid, solid. I think this, I hadn't heard this record in a long time before researching this episode, and I forgot how well this album just works. It just, every every song on here has its place, and it's, oh, it's so good. Michael, what do you think about uh, Out of Time? Yeah, I mean, what a weird record to be like the most recognizable and like the fan favorite right i mean you do get a lot of the hits on here well well, hold on i i wouldn't say this really is a fan favorite maybe the next one but this record to me again kind of just just kind of like some fact checking it's it's a bit 
divisive among fans overall while there are songs everyone agrees on you know um it's because of its pop sensibilities it's kind of a bit of a divisive album but mm-hmm. so i don't know do you agree with that michael or i don't know do you think some fans just have a stick up their ass <laughs> yeah probably that i mean i mean fan favorite by the fact that losing my religion is on this one and everyone yeah. recognizes that cover so that's what i mean by like recognizable it's strange that it got so popular just off of that one song and shiny happy people and stuff because the weird blend of like country baroque kind of classical almost um fusion on here is like something i've never heard before and something that's a little challenging for a first time listener but definitely what's not challenging is the main signal off this one called losing my religion and go ahead and play it Sorry, go ahead, Michael. Well, no, like you're saying, the vocals are incredible and the lyricism is incredible, too. You told the story, the true story about this song on the podcast before. Do you want to do it again? Just like a more Um, brief version? Well, yeah. So, uh, well, first of all, I was going to say the vocals still can be chills to this day. Like, I think that one... um, I want to say one like a Grammy... This song won a Grammy... Uh, for like best rock vocal performance or something along that lines. And it's one of the few times where I can think like, yeah, no, the um, Grammys you actually did it right there. Congratulations. Um, no, this, yeah, you know, this, this song, we, I, we did talk to, we talked about it on our uh, pot, on our love episode that we did actually a year to this day. Uh, my, my girlfriend was like, texted me earlier and said, yeah, like this album was released this, the exact, this exact date as you're recording the 13th of February. Um, a year ago it's like it's crazy how time flies um but yeah uh man you know um the, the, everyone likes to know oh, it's about like atheism and he's denouncing religion no um actually losing my religion refers to uh, it's like a southern phrase it refers to like losing one's cool basically it's a very relatable topic of loving someone who doesn't love you back um and that's so this is why it's kind of sad and heartbreaking and and the one thing i will i don't want to get into it too much again i think if you want to hear my full rants about the song um go back and listen to that episode um but one thing i will say kind of listening to again for this episode i kind of appreciate how they tackle that subject without this record sounding 
you know, like it was written by some incel, you know, it's not like a, it's not like some of the stuff I heard on those early violent femme records. I like, like I say, I think, um, you know, I, I really like uh, how we, how relatable Sype writes it, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, it's not like necessarily like painting anyone as the bad guy in the situation. It's like, okay, no, it's just kind of dealing with the heartbreak of that, you know, like loving someone that doesn't love you back. And I think it relates to and. Yeah, this is easily one of their best singles, one of the best songs in their entire catalog, and I love it so much. However, uh, there's another single this record that's a little more divisive among fans. Michael, this is probably one of the most important discussions we have to have in this whole episode. Shiny happy people, yay or nay? Nay. <laughs> nay. It's, it's, I don't like it. I don't know why. It's just like, it, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't fit with the rest of the record. That's that's all it is. You know, and that's fair. You know, I think that's fair. I, I think, like, you know, maybe that record could have worked better if it was um, on green, per se. Maybe, like, in the context, it would work better. But, you know, I, I you know, a lot of, you know, there are some fans who really like that song. A lot of fans who just trash it. I'm kind of very conflicted on it. Because, on the one hand, you have some amazing backup vocals from Kate Piercing of the B-52s. I think she makes a couple guest appearances on this record most notably on on shiny happy people and the interplay between her and michael are amazing and and the riff the main like riff is so bouncy and fun and energetic oh it's so good on the other hand the phrase shiny happy people is inherently stupid to its very core and like not in a good way and like the weird vile like string opening that awkwardly transitions into that riff just doesn't fit and like it just whenever those strings come in it just just stops the song dead a dead halt i don't know like i think the good on that track is really good and the bad on the track is really bad but yeah you know i think maybe that track is what gives some fans a sour sour taste in their mouths which is a shame because i think this record has so much going for it again i love kind of the the, the uh, new instruments they bring here i think it works a lot um you know, uh, low. I think it's a great follow-up uh, in turn to losing my religion on the record. It comes right after. It's kind of this darker, uh, you know, uh, almost, I want to say take on the song, but it does have some similar similar lyrical and musical phrases thrown around uh, to losing my religion. So it's a cool follow-up to that. I love Texarana, country feedback. Me and Honey is kind of this weird psychedelic track. Radio song as a cool guest uh, spot from KRS-One, if I remember correctly. But um, the one I want to highlight uh, is kind of a deep cut. I want to talk about Half World Away because it's uh, another love song, more typically about having a long-distance relationship, something I can relate to at the moment. So, yeah, I, I kind of want to highlight that one. This could be the saddest dusk I've ever seen Turn to a miracle I lie My mind is racing As it always will My hands tired, my heart aches I'm half a world away Here my head swarm Hold along, hold it along, hold along, hold it, go it along, hold it along, 
color Half a world, half a world away But shoes are gone, life I think I, I don't think I have anything else to say about out of time, Michael. Do you? No, not really. I'm ready to move on to the true fan favorite, would you say? Um, definitely one of them. I mean, mm-hmm. it kind of varies between fan to fan, but like I I don't know. Like I guess there's different subjects of fans and which ones they would say those favorites, but automatic for the people is probably up there. Uh released in nineteen ninety two. Uh I'm gonna double check. No, you're right. You're right. Thank you. Yep. So 1992, so a year after Out of Time. Um, and they really leaned into the acoustic elements on this one. Um, and, you know, this album is probably more acoustic than just electric. Uh, electric almost is like accents the acoustic from time to time on here. Um, and my God, this is quite an album. Uh, this is celebrated as one of the best records by critics and fans. Uh, commercially, I want to say it's one of the most successful, probably either this or um, Out of Time. And yeah, for a reason, like this record is quite amazing. And it's amazing how um, commercially successful it was because lyrically, this record's kind of depressing and sad. It talks a lot about themes of loss and death out here. And, uh, you know, it's almost brooding at times and uh, and quite sad at others. Um, I don't know, Michael, what do you think about Automatic for the People? I enjoyed this one. I think it was good. it it, this is starting to be like since i consume so much rem in one week this is where i'm starting to like okay i have to finish this before the episode so i was i kind of rushed through it which i regret but what i did like on this one is their use of instrumentations i think rem in certain spots in their discography and i think objectively this is true has a filler problem Um, I think they're a band that would rather have a fully produced, fully written and vocalized song rather than just doing something interesting with an instrumental and having it um, kind of guide the album, which is something that they changed on Automatic for People with New Orleans Instrumental. Um, So I would like Ben to play a clip of that and you can kind of see what I mean. kind of see just very moody very sort of somber and it just guides the album that's what i want i am i'm a huge proponent for instrumental tracks to guide an album and i think this was a good example and um you know it's something i wish they would have realized on earlier albums such as you know uh fables of reconstruction or life's rich pageant because perhaps you know i wouldn't have gotten as much filler and i would have just had a better album experience and i think that's what automatic for people is it's a good album experience yeah you know i i don't know if i can fully um 
don't know. I don't fully agree. Did you say there was filler on this record? Sorry, Michael. Um, no, not really. But like some oh. of those early ones, like okay. like uh, the well, ones I just mentioned. Well, I, yeah. And while I, I do kind of agree with some of those early records to a filler, but uh, yeah, this is a really nice change in sound. I really like this acoustic aspect they really bring to this. Uh, I don't like every song on the record, though, and I'll get to that in a second. But no, this is also probably one of my favorite REM records. It's not exactly an original pick, but Ooh, I, I don't know, like a lot of these songs, I was playing this right before we got on, you know, and this, a lot of these songs still hit really hard. I love it, it's it, it, all the ballads that come on here are just really strong. Uh, Try Not to Breathe kind of talks, you know, we're talking about love and loss. Uh, Try Not to Breathe kind of talks about, um, uh, like there's like an old family member who's on this deathbed and he's assuring his family, no, it's okay, you don't have to cry. It's fine, I will, uh, I'll be okay. I've lived a full life, I've seen a lot everything's gonna be okay sweetness follows almost can kind of later on the record it's this awesome brooding track that kind of um uh that you can kind of could be argued as kind of like a follow-up you know ly lyrically in that sense because it talks about a family like reconciling after a family member's death they had all kind of been part for a while and that death kind of brought them closer um you know and the singles on here though if there is one big knock I have with the records, the singles. Um, the the three singles in here were Drive. That one's not. That one's awesome. Uh, it's the opener. It has this really cool like acoustic riff, and then it builds slowly, adding new string and electric electric guitar elements. In fact, the electric guitar solo on there. Peter Buck used a quarter, if I remember correctly, to play the solo, which just gives a really cool sharp sound. However, I've never been a huge fan of Man on the Moon. I never really understood it. I don't like the whole yeah, 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 and the verses. It's honestly annoying. And I don't know. It never really did anything for me. And then we get to Everybody Hurts. Um, this might sound horrible, but I'm going to say it. I hate that song. I hate Everybody Hurts so much. And I know the lyrical content is important, and it's kind of depressing. Uh, if you don't know, Bill Berry was the one who wrote that, and... They wanted to, this band wanted to dedicate the song to their teenage fans who might be feeling suicidal or depressed and saying, hey, it's okay. Everybody hurts. Let's all just kind of, you know, you, you, you get help. Don't, please don't, you know, end your life, you know, and I, which is, of course, a very good message and kind of a good responsibility, I think, for a band to take. I'm sure they had a lot, they, I'm sure they had a lot of fans who were probably feeling, thinking those thoughts at the time, but I don't know, just because even if the attention was good, the execution was really misguided, I think. First of all, talking about like everybody hurts, everybody feels this way. I mean, saying that to kids who are going through actually clinical depression or manic depression, that's, I don't know, that seems pretty misguided. And because I don't know if that's necessarily true. And the song, as gross as my sound, is really cheesy. Like the overwrought vocals that Michael Cyrus performs on here is just too much. I don't know. The song never really did, did much for me beyond, like, I liked it when I first heard it, but I've just grown to hate it. Um, what songs did you like, Andrew? Well, I already mentioned some of them. Drive. Um, you know, uh, Sweetness Follows. I love the, love the two album closer. The, the closing tracks, Night Swimming and follow Find the River. Um, but man, if there is one track that I want to highlight, and I think it's their most underrated track in their entire discography and probably my favorite R.E.M. song is Monte Gallera Deal. <sighs> I mean, this is one of Michael Sipes' most underrated vocal performances. It's not loud or crazy like it was on Everybody Hurts. 
it's a little more understated, but the way he's able to kind of still deliver this one, that much emotion through it. Um, I think it talks about some old uh, like actors or game show hosts from like the 50s and 60s and kind of talk about their downward spiral to use to describe something. I don't know. The, the, lyric, the meaning here, like a lot of his, like a lot of his lyrics, um, is pretty cryptic. I guess you can talk about how like, maybe you can talk about, you know, the downfall, you know, celebrities, you know, spiraling out of their successes or perhaps it's maybe not meeting expectations i mean you can take this a lot of different ways all i know is this record sorry the song still gives me chills to this day and i really wanted to highlight it on this episode monty this seems strange to me the movies had that movie thing but nonsense has a welcome ring and heroes don't Nonsense isn't new to me I know my head, I know my feet But mischief knocked me in the knees So just let go Just let go I saw the ocean beat the man I saw you I think we can, and I think uh, you know maybe maybe I'll be wrong, but I think these last two will move a little bit faster. Because uh, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't know about you, Andrew. I'm gonna say it right now, man. Monster, my least favorite REM record that I've listened. You to. know, and I had a feeling it was going to be, which is a shame because I really like Monster. Um, I don't know. It, you know, it, it. I get it, but you know. Well, let's talk about it. So yes. Monster released in 1994. And as you can tell, the band had kind of, you know, gone from your traditional rock and roll, you know, um, with the previous two records and arguably even with Green, sort of. Um, and they wanted to go back down to the dirty basics of doing, uh, of doing, uh, of, you know, making rock music, basically. And that's what you get here with Monster. It, it's... Uh, many say it's the closest they'll ever do to making a grunge album. It's definitely fits right with the alternative rock scene at the time, but um, which I could see to maybe to some detriment for some fans personally. I think um, I think they still added their own. Um, I think they added still their own spin to the sound. I still think REM. Uh, was able to provide some interesting ideas in here. I really like the guitar tone and like the use of glam style. 
the, the influences of glam and grunge thrown in here. Um, the use of like repeater like, pedals. I, I, I don't know. I really like it, but I knew you probably wouldn't like this one, Michael. Like, kind, of, kind of talk to me about it. I, uh, it's not that I don't think it's a bad record. I think it's original above all else, which is a good thing. Um, and I know you would like something like this, Andrew. It's, it is harder. It's dirtier. It's like, um, a complete rewind of like what they were trying to do on the past three records with the experimentation. It's just a guitar record, which is cool. Um, and that's what their goal was. They set out to make rock songs. Um, after keep in mind, they hadn't toured since like 1980. eight in this at this point so they wanted to get back out there and tour and they needed songs that they could perform live that was the goal of this record and they accomplished that for the most part but if you want to make rock songs make them explode i don't think a lot of the songs on here do that i mean a lot of it ends up being more of like a droney sort of an atmosphere which Mm -hmm. is cool i like that but in in the uh, sort of context of REM, it just doesn't work. And it, I feel like the production was very sort of uh, kind of drags and it, the way these guitars were produced, it just doesn't do it for me. They're not layered well. Um, you know, I think there's maybe one or two layers of guitar on this, on these tracks at a time, which does not help with the sort of explosion and excitement that they were trying to capture on this. Mm-hmm. Um, so therefore the songs that I do like are the ones that I think get the closest to capturing that, which would probably be like star 69 or circus envy or something like that. But songs like tongue, uh, I don't sleep. I don't dream. I mean, they just, they don't belong there in what they were trying to set out to do. Yeah, and, you know, I think that's fair. Um, I, I really like the kind of the droney sounds in here. Um, obviously, with uh, most notably with the big single off this, What's the Frequency, Kenneth, which is one of their last big hits that they had before they brought for uh, well, pretty much the rest of their rest of the band's history. But, uh, you know, I, I really like, I guess I really like these droney sounds, but I even I have to agree that this album. I mean, it's almost 50 minutes long. This album does drag a bit. There might there probably, might be even a couple songs you might they probably should have even thought about cutting. But I I, I still never like found myself like hating this record. I I, I still think for a, a departure in sound. I mean, this is probably the biggest departure from from like a record to a, to another record for them, you know. And I, and I really appreciated it. But I understand this not to be everyone's thing. Uh, this sometimes, I mean, this also tends to be one of the Bill Berry records that length ranks lower um, with fans. And I, I kind of, I do get it. But anyways, let's hear, Michael, let's hear your favorite song, Andrew, and then we can move on. Sure, we will hear mine. I mean, there are some highlights, particularly uh, just one song I do want to mention off towards the end of here before I play mine. Um, uh, let let me in, which is was actually dedicated to Kurt Cobain. I mean, this was this album was released in '94, same year he unfortunately uh, ended his life. So, yeah, that's kind. Of, so that song was really a dedication for him. Um, however, the one I like to play, I want to play. I think it's kind of a really fun song. Uh, it's this really weird like vocal effect of Michael Stipe's uh, voice in here, and it sounds really cool. It's called King of Copy. Make your money with a student. Make 
I do like the kind of the glam elements on that one. It, it is like a nice, catchy, weird song. But mm-hmm. anyway, what's, last what's record the song you want to highlight? Um, I don't know. I was thinking we would skip over me, but if Ben does want to play something real quick, I do really like Star Sixty Nine because, haha, Sixty Nine. Supposed to be a serious episode, Michael. keep it moving here before we get to the next record though there is a bit of context needed for it um so my as michael said before um uh rm had really toured for the previous two records uh they kind of sat it out so after monsters release they went on the first tour i want to say six years um uh, which unfortunately was kind of collected a lot of health issues uh, i think i think i want to say michael barry Mills? I don't know if Buck, I don't know. I, I don't know. I think, I think it was those three that had like, I think I had to go to the hospital, go surgery. I think one of them had like a brain aneurysm. The other ones had like a hernia. It, it was some crazy stuff that was happening during that, mm-hmm. during that tour. And maybe that kind of influenced how that, how the next record sounded. But I think what, with the bigger influence and how the, the last record we're going to talk about here sounded uh, was the fact that they recorded a lot of this material on the road. Um, they, they think they brought like an eight eight track recorder with them, and the whole idea it almost the whole idea to me at least it kind of almost made the next album we're talking about New Adventures and Hi Fi kind of like a road trip album in a sense. You know, you you have a lot of different ideas kind of thrown in here. I've heard some people call it like their white album because of that. You know, have the all these different sort of sounds they're going to bring to here. Um, yeah, you know, 1996 is... Um, New Ventures in Hi-Fi was met with generally good reviews, but like sales and like reception wise overall was kind of lukewarm compared to their other records previously, but has since gone on to kind of become a fan favorite. I, I, I see this one ranked pretty highly nowadays when it comes to ranking REM records. I have a feeling, Michael, you do not feel the same way. Um, no, I mean, I, I actually enjoyed this one decent amount. You got to keep in mind too. I'd listened to this record in full this morning. Um, so I didn't have a lot of time to digest. This was a lot of music, but, yeah. uh, I did, I did enjoy this one a lot more than monster, uh, just because, um, of the general energy and the context that this record is put in. I, I think it's really cool that they recorded this on the road in kind of true REM fashion. I mean, they were rigorous tours like at the um at the start of their career and now that we're kind of seeing the last of like the golden uh run here they're kind of returning to that and it's really cool to kind of see them go on their um 
on their like huge tour as you can also see they're getting older they're um starting to you know uh, you know accept that they're not the young rock stars that they once were um and we still and we i feel like we get a piece of every of rem's history on every single one of these songs which makes it a really good kind of a goodbye album of course they recorded like five others after this but um you know if they stopped right here like andrew said they would have one of the best run they do have the best runs in music history so yeah. um i like uh how the west was won because of the kind of quirky piano um ben you can play a little bit of that This record's pretty good too, but I will say, uh, up down there with Murmurous is probably one of my least favorites. Um, I don't know, you know, I, I I I get why a lot of fans have grown to appreciate this record. I like, I think a lot of the ideas to bring her are fun and interesting, although some of them have some weird quirks. Like I I really like that song you just played, Michael, even though it does get really kind of repetitive by the end. Um, I think one of the earlier tracks. Um, also, it's just perplexing with the lyrics. I don't remember which one, but there's a track where Michael Stipe was like singing from like the point of view of like a car, like driving on the road. It like it's a Pixar film. I don't know. It it, it was it was pretty dumb, even for dumb Michael Stipe lyric standards. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's the biggest thing with this record for me. It has a bit of a slow start, and not even in terms of tempo. Just kind of just it really get it really takes a while for me to get going to like bring in any elements I really enjoy but you know I really like how they were able to combine a lot of these slower ballads and these slow burn tracks in fact the longest song in their discography is on here titled Leave which is a really good one um but you know overall this you know you know overall though it's just kind of a bit of a slog to get through it's the longest album at an hour and six minutes so uh, I don't know. I, I like some of the harder rocking songs on here, but overall, it, it, it's definitely one that you probably, uh, if you are going to get into it, it will probably require a, a couple listens to. Um, the song I want to highlight, uh, Bittersweet Me. Uh, it's a really good ballad on here. So let's play that. Uh-huh. 
a cross Innocence lost All flesh and poor sight I move across the earth In my new pattern shirt I pass satellite You're so bitter last album we're talking about here um i think they um it was either this record or like maybe after this is when they signed a new deal with warner brothers um although that proved to not be very fruitful for warner brothers because um at least i mean at least for new output because uh the following year 1997 bill barry uh decided he wanted to leave the band i think he sounded like he was burnt out or just wasn't as passionate with the band as before um, and it was a big blow uh, to the band members. They almost didn't want to continue on uh, on making music afterwards, but uh, I think they were later convinced by other people that they should. They ended up using five more records across the span for about a decade, from uh, 1999s, I want to say, up to, um, to 2011's Collapsed Now. And while you know, critics t- typically kind of dismiss them, uh, most fans will say it's a little unfair that there's definitely a lot of good to be found in there but pretty much everyone agrees that mm, they, they can't hold a candle to what uh to what the band made when all four original members were there uh like i said earlier bill barry was occasionally did occasionally join back on tour with the band afterwards but it was all mainly session and touring musicians uh that filled his his spot uh when it came to making records and touring uh, the band eventually uh, broke up officially in 2011, I think it's September, I want to say, and uh, they've all kind of just been doing their own thing since. Um, and that's our discussion on REM. Okay. Uh, before, to kind of wrap things up, Michael, what what do you think, you know, I, I kind of posed the idea, not only their ability to constantly reinvent themselves, but that they're, but that the, these 10 records that we just went through, uh, is one of the best release streaks, one of the best runs in music history. Uh, do you agree with that? If you don't, that's fine. But I, I am curious to hear your thoughts on that and that statement. And in general, what do you think REM's legacy is on music? Hmm. After going through all of this and and like picking out our high points, I would have to say that like. Yeah, there was they REM checked off all the boxes. They had their um, kind of characteristic upbringing, and in their first two records, they had a sort of transition period. They had a great experimental phase. They had some uh, you know unexpected highlights following that experimental page or phase. So yeah, I think REM is a good representation of 
what pretty much all rock bands want to achieve. Um, you know, they did the classic thing. And I think uh, these albums are going to live on for years to come. Uh, people like me who have REM on their list of bands that finally get around to checking them out are going to find it and, and find a lot of merit in it. And then there's always going to be people like you, Andrew, who acknowledge and accept that it's like, this is like the one of the best runs. So yeah, REM has a, is a benchmark in musical history uh, for a, uh, you know, not only for the college rock scene, but for alternative rock in general. So yeah, the great episode. I think this was uh, probably one of our smoothest, um, like big discography one run through yeah. we've ever done. Uh, I'm good because I'm glad because I was a little afraid because yeah I know I was worried trying to tackle all these records and a span of about an hour and a half I don't know if we hit that I hope we did uh, <laughs> um, but I you know yeah and I, I had a lot of fun talking about this of course again it's one of my favorite bands and overall I think they've had one of the biggest impacts ever in alternative music um, and I have to thank him for I have to thank him for that you know this is one of my overall favorite genres so yes. R.E.M. Great band. I don't know what else to say. More of a way to wrap things up. But no, that was the main portion of R.E.M.'s discography run through here on Soundcheck. And I'm very happy I at least got to at least finally have Michael running it. He probably isn't introduced to this band. Michael, are you a fan of R.E.M. now? And will you return to this music after uh, this episode is over? Of course. Of course. Perfect. Perfect. That's what I like to hear. And with that being said, I think we can go on to our recommendations. Uh, I talked a lot in this episode. Michael, please go first. I need a break. So before uh, I started researching for this week's episode and in between listening to REM, my palate cleanser was the silver juice. Ben's clapping away because I know for a fact that David Berman is one of uh, Ben's favorite songwriters of all time. And he's becoming one of mine after uh, listening to just, I, you know, I just pulled up the This Is Silver Juice playlist on Spotify and just listened to all the hits. And oh my God, this this man, like if you want to talk about poetry, man, I mean, his lyrics just like ascend. They go places that no man, woman, child has ever gone before. Uh, and it's like their songs like... Um, there's songs that make me cry and his discography just from listening, really diving in this week. But uh, the song I want to show everyone is uh, from uh, Tanglewood Numbers called Punks in the Beer Light. And this is just a nod to Andrew because, as we know, he's a punk. So. But I don't drink beer. <laughs> you had a half right.
Michael said it was good. Rest in peace, you beautiful angel. All right. Now we can I go gotta say, angels. I really liked the guitar tone on that. Yeah, that was really cool. Um, I do not know. Um, was it David Berman? Is that you said his name was? Yes. I do not know him very well. Maybe I should. Um, all right. I'm going to go with the track. Not a tra- um, not really a track. An artist that I wanted to bring up on our acoustic episode last week. Uh name is Jessica Hoop. And uh, her song, uh, Pegasi, just barely didn't qualify because I think there was some like steel guitar or something uh, thrown in at the end. Um, but that's okay. Cause I can talk about her here real quick. Um, the, the album I'm referring to is memories are now it was released in 2018 and I don't, it doesn't it has, Oh, I was going to say, I, it actually, I don't know how much attention the circuit has, but it actually has a lot, <laughs> like a lot of the songs in here have over a million monthly plays. So I don't know. Good for her. Um, yeah, no, Jess Coop's really cool. I remember it was in, um, Narbor record store a few years ago. I want to say, Oh, I think it was Wazoo records. Yeah, that's what it was. Um, it was a really cool record store there. And, uh, the, the owner was playing this over the speaker. It's like, wow, this is really cool. Like, what is this? Oh, Jess Coop. Yeah, it's just really cool. She's on sub pop. Um, yeah, it, it's a really it's a really good album overall, and I've always actually wanted to show this one to Michael because I think he would really like it, um, or he'd be bored by it. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure he would like it. So, uh, yeah, this 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 album, uh, yeah, Memories of Now, I definitely recommend everyone listening to. Um, uh, this this song the song I want to play here is Animal Animal Kingdom Chaotic. Really cool. See you. That's the for that's this episode, yes. right, Michael? I, yes, it is. Boys, I want to do one special thing to close this episode. What? I didn't talk about this previously. We have a very special birthday today. Mr. Henry Rollins, our our punk uh, godfather, is turning 60 today. 60? On Febu- 60 years old on February 13th. So I think instead of our usual good night, Detroit, <laughs> we all do yes. a quick happy birthday. Uh, real quick, though. Yeah, I want to tease next week's episode. Go for it. We've we've, we've been fairly calm these past uh, couple episodes. We had acoustic music last week. REM has some punchy songs, but overall, you know, a fairly accessible band. We're going through a to we're going to completely depart from that, and we're going to talk about um, a certain genre that I love so much: thrash metal, particularly 
exploring Thrash beyond the big four. But that is for next week. As of right now, what do we say, Michael? Happy birthday, Henry Rollins. (laughs) You ruined it. You ruined it. (laughs) 